This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. I am very excited to get into this one. Um, so in, in 1965, a boy named Richard, who was eight years old at the time, was riding his bike with a friend and accidentally was hit by a car while crossing the street. And then he had this amazing experience uh, where he went up into an afterlife realm and essentially had a Q&A session with some divine beings. And so sometimes a, a near-death experience can be very focused on the sensations and the imagery and the feelings of, of the afterlife or, or the experiencer. And other times, you know, it can be more focused on this kind of sharing of ideas and, and asking questions about, about the nature of life, about the nature of God. And we're definitely dealing with, with the latter in, in this case. And so this was a very very interesting near-death experience to read. And I ended up talking for quite a bit after the experience because it just raised so many profound and, and deep questions. And, and I, I drew on some, some of my reading that I've been doing to try and answer them. Like, why does uh, a particular experiencer see God in a certain way? And what use are we to God? What can mankind do for the divine? We always hear about a divine plan or God's plan being unfolded on earth. And this experience of Richard's just just kind of brought these questions up. And and it was really fascinating to, to talk about them. And I hope you uh, enjoy that. So as usual, I have gotten this story from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation uh, and their website, nderf.org. And I will post the link um, to the story in the description of this episode. So I, I just highly recommend anyone interested in reading some more near-death experience stories to, to go check out that website because um, it's just it's an amazing resource for, for anyone who's interested. So, um, well, this is quite a long episode, so I think we'll just go ahead and dive right in. This is Richard's near-death experience. I was eight years old and growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, in the San Gabriel Valley in a town called El Monte. I was riding my bike one day with my best friend, Felix, along a busy street. I was on the right side of the road, going with the flow of traffic. My friend was on the opposite side, riding in the same direction. I needed to cross the street to join him, so I looked over my shoulder to watch for oncoming cars. Because of the curve in the road, I couldn't see much more than 100 feet. The speed limit on this road was 40 miles per hour, but people often drove much faster than that, so I knew that I didn't have enough sight distance to safely cross. I realized that Felix would be able to see further than I could, 
so I called out to him. Hey, see any cars coming? He looked back, shook his head, and said, All clear. I veered sharply to the left to cross. The last thing I remember was the sound of screeching tires, looking over my shoulder and seeing the front end of a 1962 Chevy Impala not more than 10 feet away. Blue-gray smoke was coming up from the sides as the brakes locked up the tires. The next thing I remember was the sensation of floating about 20 feet up in the air. I looked down and saw some kid lying in the middle of the road. He looked familiar. He was lying there, spread-eagled. Left leg was at a funny angle. His clothes were ripped and bloody. He wasn't breathing. I felt a strange sense of calm and detachment, as if the horrible scene below me really wasn't important. I watched as several people ran up to the boy. One of them started breathing into his mouth. I could hear him speaking with two voices. That's odd, I thought to myself. I heard him say, Call an ambulance. He's not breathing. I could also hear him say, Oh my God, oh my God, don't die on me, at the same time. I realized that he was thinking this, not saying it. I could hear others thinking as well yet I could make out everything they all were saying slash thinking at the same time and still being able to understand all of it. I watched this scene for what seemed like about a minute. Then I noticed a bright light shining above me. I looked up and saw light streaming out of what looked like a pinhole in the sky. The hole was slowly getting bigger. I could see that it distorted things around it like a lens bending light. The light was like mother of pearl in color, with streaks of blue, pink, green, and yellow gold. It was very beautiful and very bright, yet I could see it clearly. Not like looking at the light from the sun, which can be uncomfortable. I started to hear a buzzing sound that quickly became loud. As the sound increased, A hole above me got bigger, the light got brighter, and I felt myself being pulled towards it. I felt as if I was being squeezed through an opening that was too small for me. The buzzing sound became a whooshing roar as I entered the hole, with a Doppler-like effect as I passed through it. The sensation was like speeding down a tunnel at light speed, not unlike a warp effect you see in movies. I wasn't alone in there, either. I felt the presence of others, but I couldn't see them. I passed through some kind of dividing line, a barrier of sorts, hard to describe. I was surrounded by light. Misty shapes began to form as I looked around. At first they were just moving swirls of light, but they soon took the shape of human forms. There were a lot of them around me. I heard soft whispering coming from them, like a crowd murmuring and talking among themselves. From this crowd, three shapes came forward and approached me. As they drew near, I could make them out better, as if they were slightly out of focus and my eyes were adjusting. They were tall and slender, wearing what looked like flowing robes. 
one of them was wearing a beard. They all had long, shoulder-length hair. One of them spoke to me. You're not supposed to be here yet. You have to go back. You know what you agreed to, he said. I told him that I didn't want to go back. I liked it here. It felt like home. I felt like they were amused by my response. You must go back. You have work to do. We'll send you back soon. I looked around me at the crowd. I saw familiar faces. These were friends, family, enemies, people I had known before, but I couldn't remember from where or when. Some of them I knew I had known for a very long time. Many lives, many places, many times. I flashed on visions from those lives and events. There was a continuity and connectedness about all of it, a sense of purpose and order that spanned the centuries. I looked back at the three people in front of me. These people were ancient. I don't know how I knew that, but I knew that they were old souls who watched over my group. We all had, quote, sprung from them, like children, each going their way, yet connected to the source. I felt nothing like judgment of our actions from them. If anything, I felt a kind of amused benevolence from them, like parents watching their children playing. Even at the really bad things we did in our lives, there was no judgment. The one with the beard spoke to me. You can ask questions. We will answer them and you will remember. It is important that you do this. My first question was, is this heaven? It can be, if that's what you want. It can be hell as well, if that's what you believe. This reality is an extension of you, instantly realized and formed. You always create your own reality, no matter where you find yourself, for we are all co-creators. Where is God? I don't see him, I asked. They became visibly amused, like they were snickering at my question under their breath. How can you see that which you are yourself a part of? We are all expressions of God. When you see with your eyes, you see through the eyes of God, and He experiences reality through yours. When you speak to God, you speak to yourself. We are one and the same. There is no division or separation. You can no more see God than your hand can see you, for it is a part of you and functions because of you and for your purposes, as well as its own. There is no separation. Any that seems to exist is an illusion. The light that surrounds us here is God. It is our source of being and is given freely to all. Next question. Why do I feel like this is home? Because it is home. All begin here and return here. It is the starting point for all journeys and lessons. A strange question. I still don't know why I asked it, but at the time it seemed relevant. When I come back again, can I stay? I got an even stranger answer. We don't think you'll want to stay long. You never do. You love your lessons, especially the hard ones. 
You can do as you please. It's your choice. This went on for what seemed like an hour. I asked 15 questions that covered a wide variety of topics and ideas. I'll discuss some of these ideas upon request. Some of them I would rather not discuss. Either they're of a very personal nature, things most of us aren't ready to hear, or things I'm not supposed to talk about yet. One day, I'll maybe write a book about it. After the last question, I was told it was time to go back. I still didn't want to go back, but because of what I knew, I didn't argue the point. I don't remember any kind of specific event that got me there, but I suddenly found myself in an ambulance. I felt a terrible rush of pain throughout my whole body. I felt like I was choking. There was a tube in my throat. I smelled and tasted blood. I looked over at the attendant sitting next to me, and I was hit with a very strong sense of deja vu. It was a memory of a dream I had a couple days before. This very scene was in it. I remember one thing that really stood out. Two words. I remember. Okay, so that was Richard's near-death experience. And now I'm going to read some of the questions and answers that are at the end of the experience just to provide a little more context um, to, to what he's already written. Okay, so, how did your highest level of consciousness and alertness during the experience compare to your normal everyday consciousness and alertness? More consciousness and alertness than normal. I was able to be in multiple places at the same time and experience events and conversations on many levels at once. I had no problem with keeping track of these multiple experiences. The sense of time seemed to be much more expansive, kind of like a moment, point, that is stretched out both into the future and the past at the same time. I'd just like to point out right here that is very similar to if you think back to Jim's near-death experience and the place that he described as being the in-between, kind of like an in-between a, a moment. Um, that just kind of reminded me of that. At what time during the experience were you at your highest level of consciousness and alertness? Right after going through the tunnel, my feelings during that time can only be described as supernatural, but very real and natural at the time. Even to this day, the feeling exists like a real event and not a dream. Did time seem to speed up or slow down? Everything seemed to be happening all at once. As described in my narrative above, time seemed to be stretched out. I like to use the term expansive because it seems better suited to the experience. Please compare your vision during the experience to your everyday vision that you had immediately prior to the time of the experience. When I was floating above my body, I could see 360 degrees around me at the same time but I only seemed to focus on a smaller visible area similar to my normal physical vision. People I saw below me appeared to have a kind of streakiness about them, kind of like being smeared when they moved. Colors seemed normal. 
No transparency noted. Please compare your hearing during the experience to your everyday hearing that you had immediately prior to the time of the experience. During the out-of-body experience, none noted. During the events immediately afterward, when I was on the other side, I heard sounds inside my head, as opposed to coming from outside like normal hearing. Did you seem to enter some other unearthly world? Clearly mystical or unearthly realm. Many places in many ways. At times it felt as if I was actually standing on a dirt path, for example, seeing a home I used to live in a short distance away. At other times I seemed to be watching things from the outside, like I was peering into another reality. Hard to describe. Okay, so those were some of his questions or his answers to questions that are usually at the end of, of uh, the uh, near-death experiences on the nderf.org website. Uh, sometimes they can add a little more context and a little more uh, idea of, of what was going on and what the experience was like. So sometimes I like to read them, and I thought some of his answers were very interesting. So we'll try and get into his experience itself and see what we can take away from it. Uh, I suppose we will just start at the beginning of his experience and it began in a uh, somewhat uh, typical regular way that most near-death experiences do where he uh, is floating above his body. Uh, Interesting that he adds the detail in the questions that he had 360 degree vision. That is something that we often see but Again, we, we have this very typical um, kind of experience that, that people have of floating above one's body, and he also has the uh, a similar reaction to most people in that they, they feel a kind of almost apathy or, or nonchalance towards the body. It's kind of like, oh, who's that, who's that, that guy down on the floor and, and, or down on the ground? Why is everybody making a big deal? And... And so that it's very interesting that we we see that so often, and it seems to, that he had some kind of uh, he was picking up on the thoughts of the first responders who were who were trying to revive him, and I guess at first he thought they were his own thoughts or or, or something. He was kind of confused about where they were coming from, but but he did uh, <laughs> kind of identify them with the thoughts of. Of other people, and and given the uh, side effects that he's described since coming back from his near death experience, it's interesting that during the experience it, itself, he has this kind of reading of thoughts, which again is something that we we often see in NDEs. So from there, from there, we I guess we move into more of the uh, the meat of the experience, so to speak, where he goes through the tunnel. It, I guess it's a, a light that appears kind of in the sky as a, a pinhole. Uh, sometimes we've seen this motif uh, appear more in a, a, I guess, a kind of a blank kind of space, a void, so to speak. Uh, there have been a couple near-death experiences where someone finds themselves in blackness and then they see a pinhole of, of light that kind of expands. But 
In this case, he was, I guess, still floating above his body and kind of looked up to the sky to where this light began to grow. And I found his his description of the colors uh, quite interesting as as kind of this mother-of-pearl kind of rainbow, so to speak, uh, with he, he says there's uh, blue, pink, green, and yellow gold. And that just kind of, uh, it's just interesting how the, this light kind of appears to people. It, it, when we were going through shared death experiences uh, an episode or two ago, um, one of them uh, had the light appear as kind of, of, I believe it was green and yellow. And so it's just, it's kind of fascinating how people describe seeing this light in their experience and how it kind of blends through all these different colors uh, or frequencies of light. Uh, and he mentions that is something that, again, we we come across again and again, that he was kind of looking into the light and it didn't burn his eyes, that it, it it's like looking into the sun or something, but but not being affected physically by it, which is interesting. And so then his his experience, I guess, kind of takes off, so to speak. Here we have what uh, usually we see in near-death experiences as a, a tunnel of some sort. And this this was very interesting. Um, it's not something that I, I come across very often, but he describes the sound of, of, of being pulled upward towards this light of, of going through this I, I guess a tunnel so to speak but it, it's like he was being pulled through an opening is, is how he described it an opening that was too small <laughs> too small for him um, and he describes this buzzing sound that becomes like a, a roar um, as he goes into this light to this hole and he even <laughs> mentions a, a Doppler effect as he kind of went through it which is interesting I I had a lucid dream once, and I, I really didn't know what to make of it. It was kind of strange because I, it was like one of those states where, where you're, I, I wasn't like in a proper dream. There was no imagery. I was just, uh, it was kind of like the, those hypnagogic uh, states between awake and asleep. So I was in blackness, but I could tell that my body was asleep and I was kind of a, awake or conscious so to speak and so I was in this kind of weird space where I wasn't actually in a proper dream like there was nothing going on it was just me in blackness and I could tell that I was lucid and my I was sleeping and my uh, body was asleep and so I'm, I'm not sure the exact question that I asked myself it was something along the lines of I wonder what God is like or what is it like to experience God? Something like that. So I asked myself that question. And then I felt my body start to tense up like I was, I don't know, having a seizure or something. My body became very tense. My muscles all con- contracted. And I heard this very loud, just kind of whooshing, just like a tornado or, or something. It was just a loud kind of swell of, of noise. And so I, <laughs> I, I got scared and I woke up. <laughs> um, just goes to show that you know, as we can see in near-death experiences as well, it's it's not always uh, something that that people are uh, <laughs> completely at peace during. It, it can be quite frightening, I suppose. But 
uh, assuming that that dream gave me some indication of, of what it's like to experience the divine. But I, I tried to find examples of, of people, I don't know, hearing an, uh, something as they were um, approaching God or, or what have you. And it, it, there was just, I didn't find very much. And so reading this was very interesting to me because that, that seems to be a, almost a parallel to, to what I kind of heard, although obviously his experience is, is uh, well, more mysterious and more, you know, he's actually having a full-blown near-death experience, having had an accident. And so I just found that that an, uh, an interesting aspect that, that we don't often come across is the, the sound of, of uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, transcending this world, so to speak. So anyway, that was just uh, a kind of personal uh, experience that I've had that, that kind of lines up with that in an interesting way. So from here, he, has, he mentions that another kind of unique aspect of this experience is that he, he, seems, he says that he passes through a kind of dividing line or, or a barrier he he also said that says that it's very difficult to express, um, which is interesting because usually it seems like in most near death experiences that that people tend to reach the threshold of some I don't know point of no return so to speak a a, a door a gate uh, some kind of barrier which which um, I don't know prevents them from joining God or, or fully being dead or you know preventing the the possibility of returning back and so in this one it, in Richard's experience it seems like this barrier is is just uh, just a barrier between I don't know our realm and this other realm which is interesting because like I said like most people don't don't ever cross that line if it is the same line or a similar line so to speak so then he finds himself surrounded by light. And, you know, obviously this light being probably the most central pattern that, that people experience during an NDE or out-of-body experience. And so he's in this light and he, I guess, begins to see shapes emerging or forming out of, out of this light. And so this, uh, this brought up something... That, that I, I want to try to address, and I'm not going to do it perfectly or even well, I don't know. But it's the question that I think is probably most intriguing about near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. And that question is, why do we see what we see? Why does a particular person see have a particular experience, and why does someone else from, you know, could be from a different culture, could be from the same culture, could be from the same state, have a, a different experience. And yet there are these uniting elements. And so I was reading uh, a, another book by Marie-Louise von Franz, the Jungian psycho, uh, psychoanalyst. And uh, this, this book was on alchemy, but this passage came up, which I found very enlightening and uh, very useful for kind of thinking about why someone sees 
particular forms. Now, we've come across this before, uh, this question at least. Um, it was, let me see, I believe it was Natasha's near-death experience where she essentially encountered a light being that told her that I can be whatever you want me to be. And so I think this this passage, it's actually kind of a long, it's a few pages of this, this book, um, uh, Alchemy by Marie-Louise von Franz. It's actually a series of lectures that she's given, and so there's audience remarks included. I, I'm going to read the entirety because I think it's it can be a useful tool to us and a uh, interesting way of, of framing this question of why do particular people see the divine uh, in a particular form? And I'm I'll read it and then I'll I guess I'll try to try to fit it into to our purposes and, and see what we can take away from it. Therefore, one might say that in his outlook on the ultimate realities of life, man is overwhelmed by ideas and concepts from within, symbols and images, but also deals with outer materials. That explains why in most rituals there is something concrete representing the symbolic meaning. For instance, a bowl of water placed in the center for divination or something of that kind. Thus matter and material phenomena are approached in a magic way, and therefore in the histories of religion of different people there are religious symbols which are personifications or representations of demons with half-personified aspects, as well as divinities, i.e. powerful factors which have a material aspect. You all know the concept of mana, which even by non-Jungian investigators of religion is compared to electricity. If an Australian rubs his Turinga stone to get more mana, it would be with the idea of refueling his totem or his life essence, like recharging an electric battery. The whole concept of mana bears the projection of a semi-material divine electricity, of divine energy or power. Thus, for instance, trees struck by lightning would represent mana. Then in most religious systems, there are sacred substances, such as water or fire, or certain plants, and so on, as well as spirits, demons, and incarnate gods, who are more personified and can speak in visions, or appear and behave in a half-human manner. At times, the emphasis lies more on the personified powers, in some religions, one aspect is more dominant, and in others, the other. For example, the religious system, which in its decaying form is mirrored in the Homeric poems, in which the Olympic and half-personified human Greek gods with their human deficiencies appear, is an extreme form of mainly personified divinities. On the other hand, there is the counterswing in Greek natural philosophy, for instance, where suddenly the whole emphasis is placed on symbols such as water, which is said to be the beginning of the world, or the fire in Heraclitus, etc., which is a revivification of the mana idea on a higher level. In Christianity there is a mixture. God the Father and God the Son are usually represented in art as human beings, 
and the Holy Ghost is sometimes represented as an old man with a beard, absolutely as a cliché for God the Father, just identical, but frequently by an animal, which is another form of personification. Or it may be represented by fire, or wind, or water, or the breath between God the Father and God the Son. So the Holy Ghost, even in the Bible, has certain forms in which it is described or likened to such natural phenomena as fire or water or breath. Thus Christianity has a God image representing both aspects. But in other religions, there are either a number of human or other gods, so that we probably have to make the hypothesis that the unconscious likes to appear in its ultimate archetypal manifestations, sometimes symbolized in natural phenomena, and sometimes personified. What does that signify? It is a very difficult question. Why, for instance, has someone a concept of God as a divine, invisible, all-pervading fire, while another person will imagine him as being something like a human being? Nowadays, people tend to think that a small child with kindergarten concepts will think of God the Father with a white beard, while later, when scientific views have been acquired, then, if thought of at all, it would be rather a meaningful power in the cosmos, or of something of that kind. But then we just project our own scientific situation. So far as I can see, it is not true that such personified manifestations or ideas of gods, or the Godhead, are more infantile. To be able to answer the question, we should be obliged to study carefully a lot of dream material, and then, quite apart from this religious problem, ask ourselves what it means if an archetypal content manifests as a ball of fire instead of as a human being. Let us say that there are two men, and one dreams of a ball of fire, which gives him comfort and enlightenment, and the other dreams of a marvelous, wise old man appearing to him and both are equally overwhelmed. Superficially, you could say that both images symbolize the self, that is, the totality, the center, a form of manifestation of the image of God. What is the difference when one man experiences light, or the fireball, while to the other the superhuman wise man appears? Answer from the crowd. The former would represent the abstract meaning. Dr. von Franz. Yes, one is more abstract, abstra here, but it is abstractus from what? Remark from the audience. It would be further from the human. Dr. von Franz. Yes, by definition, but how would you reply to the Nalisand who asked you such a question? We can never give an absolute answer, but we can say something about it. I would take it quite simply and ask the patient, and would try to lead him on. You can talk to a wise old man, ask him questions, or present him with all your human problems, whether you should divorce, or if you should spend money in a certain manner, and you can assume that since he appears in this form, he should know about that, though perhaps he will say that he is far removed from such things. In any case, the primary feeling, or guess, or the attitude which it evokes, is that you can relate to such a figure on a human level. But you cannot talk to a ball of fire or make contact with it, except in some form of natural science, 
perhaps catch it in a glass bowl, if that is possible, or watch it and see what it does. Go on your knees and worship it, and keep far enough away so as not to be burnt, or go into it and discover that it is a fire which does not burn, but that is not possible to relate to in a human form. So manifestation in a human form would demonstrate the possibility of conscious relation, whereas an inhuman form, or a natural power form, is just a phenomenon and can only be related to as such. Obviously, whatever the divine is, it has both aspects, and in most theologies this has been maintained. What is a god to whom you cannot relate? If you cannot tell him anything about your human soul, what use is he? On the other hand, what is a god who is merely a kind of human being and does not reach beyond that? He also seems to be the completely mysterious other, to which you cannot relate, just as you cannot relate to the mysterious phenomena in nature. Therefore, probably there have always been two aspects of this ultimate inner center of the psyche, one being completely transcendent, which manifests in something as remote as fire or water, and another which sometimes manifests in human form, which would mean that it was now approaching in a form to which one could relate. Okay, so that was just a, a, a series of passages from this book, Alchemy, that I'm reading by Marie-Louise von Franz that I found very useful. Although I'm not completely convinced that it it really pans out in, in our our situation when we're looking at near-death experiences. She's she's talking about how there's kind of this dual aspect of of the divine that can manifest as natural phenomena, like light or fire or water, and then a more human form. Now, obviously we've in the different episodes that we've been through, we've we've seen both aspects. But her her high, hypothesis is that the Perhaps the the personified beings that that people see in in near death experiences that are divine would be easier to relate to, perhaps more on a, a human level, and are are perhaps more capable of communicating in a way that that allows assimilation, so to speak. Whereas the more I guess profound abstract, natural kind of depictions of, of God, either as a light or a ball of fire or a even a, an eye, which we've seen in, in previous episodes, that that is less, I guess, is less, less um, easy to, to relate to in a way that perhaps, you know, it's, it's not as easy to assimilate or to take in that image of God and that it's something that perhaps you have to accommodate to. And so I'm not entirely sure that this always pans out in that easy dichotomy. It seems like uh, from past episodes that that people have communicated with the light, um, with God as the light, um, but I definitely see that that element of it being slightly more abstract. Like I mentioned, the uh, uh, image of God as a as an eye with scenes swirling around it, or uh, even in uh, you know 
well, I mentioned before Natasha's near-death experience, and this this might be a, a useful just to read back and, and see what she says because it, it has to do kind of exactly with this question. Uh, as I decided to go through this door, an energy again came to my side. I knew right away that a being was there. And here I am again turning around, laughing for the second time. It was such a good joke. In front of me was a light that was more present and ready to communicate with me. I approached the light and asked who he was. I knew he was different, different but always full of love and an overwhelming understanding. I knew that he knew everything about me. He answered me by not using words, but through feelings of emotions captured throughout all my body. I will be what you want me to be. I realized that this being could not appear to me in his true form and full goodness, but he gave me the choice of what form he would take. Although I knew he was not my guardian angel, I asked him anyway, Are you my guardian angel? Then, under my amazed gaze, this entity of love was transformed into an angel of such perfect beauty. The wings were pointed towards the sky, and he had an angelic look overflowing with love that was directed at me. Can such a being be described? Okay, so just to, again to, to try and, and use this framework a little bit to see, see what we can gain from it. In this case, she, she mentions that this being of light could not be grasped in its full form, and so it through her participation in the experience, uh, she chose the form which this kind of abstract light being would take, which uh, I guess made it slightly more accessible. So I know this is it's kind of hazy, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and I will point out, um, obviously, that, that uh, Dr. von Franz was was talking explicitly about people's dreams, which is probably much uh, more in line with what she was saying and, and, and how dreams appear and how they can be related to uh, than perhaps a near-death experience. But the question of, of why someone sees what they see is, is absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, part of me, I suspect that if you know, we were to know everything about the individual that the near-death experience occurred to, that we might be able to to understand more of, of why a certain person sees a certain something, uh, whatever their beliefs are, their um, images and, and kind of experiences that they've had through life could obviously or quite strongly shape, you know, what they experience. But we, we don't really have that knowledge. We only have kind of what they tell us and, and uh, answers to questions that, that are at the end of the experience, at least on nderf.org. And so there's, there's a, a strong component of these experiences which, which we have to look at the bigger kind of archetypal side of things, of, of these kind of d- uh, deep... Uh, profound images that occur throughout, you know, human history and various religious uh, and spiritual traditions, and see if we can 
can find, uh, you know, ways to root people's near-death experiences in, in the, like I say, in almost every episode, uh, in the human experience itself, as a way of trying to, to make sense of, of, of what the near-death experience is and and what, what it means for us and and, and why, what we're supposed to do with with this knowledge that is kind of given to us. Uh, that people bring back. So this is probably something we'll get into a little bit more once we get further along and start talking about uh, God in this case uh, and what Richard learns about God. But I just I found it so interesting that here, the first thing he comes into contact with is the light. And similar to Natasha's experience, these forms just kind of appear out of the mist, out of this kind of light, and take on a, a definite, uh, I guess, relatable, you know, being, a, a kind of form or a pattern to which, which he can then, he has the kind of bulk of his experience, which is very enlightening and, and interesting. So uh, he sees what he describes as a tall, slender beings with kind of long robes and, and and that is an interesting kind of um that that he saw i guess these tall beings with long robes i mean people often describe the beings that they encounter if, if it's not just their you know loved ones or other people have passed on or some kind of angels or, or light beings as having kind of long robes and, and kind of having flowing uh sometimes transparent bodies um, so in this case, he, he sees tall, slender kind of beings dressed, dressed in robes, and there's a large crowd that's around. Um, and out of this crowd, you know, there's people talking and stuff, and, and then three, three particular beings came forward and, and came to talk to him. So, uh, they <laughs> tell him as, as we are, uh, quite used to hearing at this point that he's not supposed to be there and uh, that he has to go back. And a little interesting bit that they add at the end um, is that they say, you know what you agreed to. And this uh, expresses the idea that we so often see in near-death experiences that it seems like our incarnation and our time on Earth is is somehow a contract or something that we agreed to and that we put ourselves into. And, well, frankly, it's it's a very comforting idea to know that <laughs> we signed up for all the pain and suffering and uh, limited kind of human nature that we are subject to, although it's not just pain and suffering. There's, there's good stuff as well. Um, and so it's kind of a mixed bag, so to speak, but uh, the idea being that that we are here because we chose to be, um, it sounds a lot better to me than being here against my will. So, you know, that is a, a powerful idea which comes up again and again. Um, and so uh, we can take that as it, as it is. And um, then he notices that he starts to look at the crowd a little bit. 
He says that he sees people that he knows. Uh, he mentions that there's friends and family, uh, people he's known. He, he mentions enemies as well, um, which is kind of an interesting idea. And uh, he says that he doesn't know from where or when that he knows all these people, this this group of people. But there's, you know, I guess a mix of, of people the. Uh, that he loves, and I guess people that he's he's had conflicts with, and and that's it's kind of interesting. In in that, you know, usually what we think of when <laughs> when people describe a near death experience is, is seeing loved ones, you know, and but I've never never heard enemies before, and and that's you know very thought provoking. In that you know, perhaps. Our enemies in, in life can perhaps in a detached kind of spiritual way be thought of as as some kind of necessary conflict with, with people that we're, we're playing this role, this uh, for whatever reason people need to, to have an enemy or to have an opponent, an adversary of some sort. And uh, maybe this, maybe that's somehow useful to the divine, that some kind of, I don't know, conflict or dynamism between two people uh, does something for whatever the plan of the divine or the, the you know, divine um, manifesting on, on earth, uh, whatever that, that purpose is, that for some reason, the fact that he can break bread with his, his enemies and in this kind of otherworldly realm means that it's somehow, I don't know, beyond uh, the morality of, of good and evil, that it's some kind of uh, people each have their own role to play, perhaps. or, or it, It's just, it, it raises a lot of questions, which um, which are, are fun to grapple with. But yeah, I've never, never heard enemies, but I guess it is that kind of idea of of having all these past lives and all these souls that we interact with in, in different different capacities. You know, there have been some near-death experiences that I've read that suggest that different beings will take on different roles in different incarnations. <laughs> so, like, uh, you know, one life, a being will be your father, and the next life... Uh, that same being would be your friend and a next life, you know, maybe uh, from Richard's experience, perhaps that same being could be an enemy. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting that, you know, while we have all these different dynamics with people throughout our lives, that, that perhaps there's this, this other aspect to it that, of which we are which we are, are just playing a certain role for a particular purpose. So that is it's very interesting. Um, and, then, and then kind of going along from that, he mentions that, you know, this is, uh, he gets the knowledge of, of the idea of, of reincarnation and seeing that this has been a process that has been going on for a long time. And he uh he mentions that in the answers to the questions that he was uh, a christian a lutheran and so obviously this is not something that he is getting from his faith 
before the uh, experience. I mean, he was eight years old at the time. So I don't know if a whole lot of Christian or Western eight-year-olds have much thoughts, have many thoughts about reincarnation, but um, clearly this was a uh, an important part of his experience, and, and he gains this knowledge that that this has been going on for a long time. And he mentions that there's kind of an an order to it. He says that there's there's kind of a purpose and orderedness across centuries. That that obviously there's some kind of uh, plan or machinery at work in this in this process of reincarnation that there's uh, some some telos or something uh, to be done or something to be accomplished through this constant process so I thought that was that was fascinating and and then and then he, he goes further and and says that the three kind of elders that were in front of him were ancient beings and and that they were old souls, and they kind of watched over his group. Um, and then he says that they, all of his group had sprung from these old beings, that they were kind of like their children. And I guess that just brings up ideas of, I don't know, hierarchy or, or some kind of, uh, I don't know, certain levels of, of closeness to divinity, maybe? to the deity of, of different kind of ascending and descending rank. Um, I know that there are many, many people who talk about different ranks of angels and saints and stuff like that. And so that's just an, a, a very, very cool idea that, that emerges there is that, that there's, I, I don't know, kind of a, a lineage perhaps of, of uh, our spiritual sides or at least that's how it's prevented or presented, and he he mentions that they're kind of like they they're the group is kind of like the children of these three old beings, and and he he says that there's that he felt no judgment, which something we see time and time again. There's no feeling of judgment, um, and and that they kind of. Um, despite whatever someone did in their their life. Uh, these three elders kind of looked upon the group as as kind of parents that are kind of amused at their children and and the play of their children, kind of this mild uh, bemusement at at people's mistakes and and even bad things that they've done. And so then we get to a part of the experience where the uh, the elders tell Richard that he can ask some questions. <laughs> um, and they say that uh, they'll answer him and, and sh- that uh, Richard will remember it. And, and they say that it's important that he does this. So why is it important that he does this? You know, we, something that is always just mind-blowing to me is that near-death experiences present such, I don't know, clear, cogent wisdom to people, that they're not just random hallucinations of, of things popping up and, you know, that there's not, that there's a kind of consistent meaning and, and uh, kind of 
morality or I don't know about morality, but a kind of purpose that that is expressed consistently in, in most near-death experiences that extend past the just the kind of out-of-body, looking-down-upon- um, one's body kind of phase. Many near-death experiences just kind of, um, it seems like people just have a, an experience of floating above their body and then their back for some reason. But the it's, it's, it seems like it's a little more rare to have this full kind of drawn-out communication with, with uh, an entity in, in a divine or afterlife realm. So they say it's important to do it, and, and I can only assume that it's important to do it, to ask questions and to learn about this so that he could share it with others or to implement it in his own life. But obviously the, these beings are taking some kind of, are putting some kind of uh, purpose on him for, for him to take this, whatever he learns, back with him to this, to our earthly lives. Um, so that, that the fact that an experience where you're not in control of what's going on, this is kind of a happening spontaneously without your will or your doing. It's just kind of a process that unfolds happens to somebody and there's obviously interaction but but there seems to be this i don't know this purpose from the other side of of wanting information or ideas to go back with the uh individual back to this life to to the earth and that's just absolutely fascinating because if if we think of this experience as something natural, something that I've talked about before, but it's very, it's it's just mind blowing that you know it's it's not <laughs> contrived in any way. It's it's happening and it's happening without people's you know necessarily wanting it to or 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 you know volition. It just has its own kind of uh, autonomy to it, and that it expresses certain ideas and certain wisdom and certain sayings and advice that are apparently important for the individual to integrate or to bring back. And so that kind of shows, I, I don't know, I, well, the, there's, you know, near-death experiences often mentioned there's some kind of divine plan or, or, or something that, that we're supposed to be doing here while we're in these lives or while we're in the, these limited human forms that in this mat- material and, um, you know, our, our kind of concrete manifestation that there's, there's something, some purpose to it that is, that is going on. And so just the fact that they emphasize that it's important for him to ask questions and get knowledge to bring back, whether just for himself or for other people, Obviously, um, he has shared some of that with us. I thought it was, um, I, I kind of want to hear what the uh, disturbing details that he has omitted um, because I like the stuff that's kind of different and weird and, and 
that doesn't quite uh, fit with our usual conception. So maybe I'll have to wait for the book for that one. But um, obviously, there's there's meaning. There's meaning coming back from from this experience, and that's assuming that you know he's able to remember it. And you know, this obviously occurred a long time ago when he was quite young. But given that we we take those for granted that those are true, that this is some kind of communication with the divine directly, or I should say the image of the divine, I, I don't know, in, it, in itself, you know, I, I, I won't make any metaphysical claims as to what, what Richard is experiencing or, or anybody is for that matter. So uh, his first question is, uh, <laughs> provides quite a bit of wisdom and that is, is this heaven? I think that's a fairly straightforward and good question to start off with. Um, and their answer is probably just useful to read in its entirety. It can be, if that's what you want. It can be hell as well, if that's what you believe. This reality is an extension of you, instantly realized and formed. You always create your own reality, no matter where you find yourself. For we are all co-creators. So again, this expresses the idea that we we just saw in Natasha's near-death experience, the, that bit that I read, that there's this kind of we make we make the forms and the experience that we we go through. <laughs> At least that's that's the idea. Although it doesn't seem that it's it's a conscious process. It's not like Richard is saying, hey, I want to talk to, I don't know, Paul Bunyan or something like, perhaps he could if he wanted to, but it, it, it seems to be going on automatically, kind of unconsciously in the background as this experience is unfolding. And so perhaps it has more to do with our, our unconscious dispositions in life and, and experiences that we've uh, perhaps our worldview that, or our culture, or you know, our religion, or our beliefs, and and that sort of thing. Once it's kind of incorporated into a uh, a particular worldview or or thoughts about what uh, our reality is, um, they say that this reality is an extension of you, and instantly realized and formed. So I guess that's kind of an indication that it's not something that Richard has to do consciously, that uh, the reality that we inhabit and our thoughts about it um, extends into this, this uh, well, experience of, of being dead, I suppose, which would account, you know, honest, honestly, for, for all the variations that we've seen so far. And, I, you know, you don't want to say one is better than the other it's just kind of it seems like it's a natural fact of of it is what it is for someone to experience just the void of of nothing and just feeling a peace or or someone being in a desert with with nothing being there or someone being at a river crossing so to speak um you know all these different things they just are what they are and 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 perhaps if one spends enough time in that realm that, that you could start to, I don't know, change your surroundings, 
based on how you're feeling. For instance, um, in uh, William's out-of-body experience, which we did a little while ago, he changes the experience itself from being in the void to an experience of God or the divine by just thinking of God. He, I believe he asked the question, well, where is God in all this? And suddenly he was transported. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That was, that was Greg's out-of-body experience. That was, yeah, that was Greg. Sorry, I've done so many that sometimes it's hard to keep, keep the name straight. But, um, but yeah, just this, the thought, I guess the opening oneself to a, a different reality or, or um, I don't know, conception of, of what could be allowed the transformation of it. So here we see a, an acknowledgement that this experience is what you make it, although it doesn't seem that it, it has, that you can really get your fingers into it, you know, right out of the gate, that it's, it's kind of what you take with you in your disposition and your psyche and your soul and how you relate to, to those things. So, and they say that we're all co-creators, which is uh, perhaps some idea of what our purpose is, that, that somehow we participate in creation. And, and this is something that um, then we get into the idea, the discussion about God. And, and I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about this because I think this is very very profound, or at least I found it profound, and, and maybe you will. I, I don't know, but um, there's uh, a, a, a couple uh, of passages from uh, Carl Jung that I'm going to read. It, they were kind of compiled in a book by the uh, um, by Edward Enninger, who's another Jungian uh, analyst, and and he, he kind of compiled these three different this three different passages from Jung's work that that kind of outlines a new myth a new myth for for kind of our our modern times where we have science and these ancient religious systems that stretch back thousands of years and we're kind of uh sorting out what's what's meaningful to to us at this time and a lot of people are i guess struggling to to find meaning in their lives in a certain way because of all these these different you know conflicts that we come across and 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 so Edinger kind of sketches out this this new myth that we can approach uh, the divine with and and I found it quite um, quite uh, you know <laughs> to be in concert with with this description of God that Richard receives from from these elder beings. So Richard said, Where is God? I don't see him. Uh, they became visibly amused, like they were snickering at my question under their breath. It's always good when someone laughs when you have to ask a question. So, All right, here is the answer, which I will read just so we have it in mind. How can you see that which you are yourself a part of? We are all expressions of God. When you see with your eyes, you see through the eyes of God and he experiences reality through yours. When you speak to God, you speak to yourself. We are one and the same. There is no division or separation. You can no more see God 
then your hand can see you, for it is part of you and functions because of you and for your purposes, as well as its own. There is no separation. Any that seems to exist is an illusion. The light that surrounds us here is God. It is our source of being and is given freely to all. Okay, so first we had the question brought up by Dr. von Franz on her book on alchemy, being why do certain individuals see the divine in, in certain forms? And then we have the question, the first question of Richards to the uh, elder beings of, of, is this heaven? And they reply that this is whatever you want it to be, that this is something that you create, which kind of goes in... Uh, in a way, almost is an answer to the question that that Dr. Von Franz has. Now, she seems to focus more on the, I guess, the aspects of of the interaction between the uh, form that that one encounters and and oneself, the the ability to communicate or or the ability to relate to it, and then the answer we received from the first question of, of Richard's is, is that of why people see what they see, uh, what whatever form that it takes, it seems to be something that is um, the unconscious reality that you inhabit that has been built up by your experiences and your own thoughts and doing perhaps your own karma. And then we get this passage on, or this the answer to the question of of where is God in all this? And I thought the their answer was just extremely profound and, and amazing. Like, they kind of relate God to, to being what, the I guess, the reality that you inhabit, that, that you yourself are a part of. And so it's it's very, very abstract. Um, I, I don't know how that relates to, I guess, the... His ability, uh, Richard's ability to talk to these beings, which emerged out of the light, it, it definitely in this in this answer that they give him, that it seems that this God is is very abstract and above and even below us. It, it seems like it's something that you know we're encapsulated in, in a way, and that uh, you know that we we experience and and that god experiences through us and that that last bit there that that god is experiencing through us that uh the what the way they phrase it is that he experiences reality through yours referring to richard's eyes uh all of our eyes perhaps that is absolutely <laughs> you know deeply uh poignant and and profound at least to me so uh it it Reminded me of of what I had read um, in uh, Edward Edinger's book, um, The Creation of Consciousness, which lays out um, this kind of these ideas that emerged out of uh, Jung's work throughout his life of perhaps what what our relation to the divine is. And so I'm going to read quite a few of these and just try to see if we can can make sense of this answer that that Richard received and what it means and, and maybe even get uh, perhaps the, the faintest idea of what this divine 
plan is or this this kind of what the the purpose that this is heading towards perhaps could be that we are okay we are we're not separate from god we're part of god and we contain god and god contains us or or something along those lines that we are the part that contains the whole so to speak and the whole uh, uh contains many parts i, I suppose uh reminds me of Hafer's description of God uh, from a few episodes back of, of uh, unity and plurality and plurality and unity, kind of this opposition. Um, so I'm going to read uh, these passages and see if we can, can tie some, some strings together here and see if we can make sense um, better of, of uh, this part of the experience. So this is from uh, Edward Enger's Creation of Consciousness, and I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but it's going to be hopefully the hopefully tie together well. Jung got a glimpse of his new myth while visiting the Pueblo Indians in the southwestern United States in the early part of 1925. He succeeded in gaining the confidence of Mountain Lake, a chief of the Taos Pueblos. In Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, Jung describes his conversation with Mountain Lake. Mountain Lake said, The Americans want to stamp out our religion. Why can they not let us alone? What we do, we do not only for ourselves, but for the Americans also. Yes, we do it for the whole world. Everyone benefits by it. I could observe from his excitement that he was alluding to some extremely important element of his religion. I therefore asked him, You think, then, that what you do in your religion benefits the whole world? He replied with great animation, Of course. If we did not do it, what would become of the world? And with a significant gesture he pointed to the sun. I felt that we were approaching extremely delicate ground here, verging on the mysteries of the tribe. After all, he said, we are a people who live on the roof of the world. We are the sons of Father Son, and with our religion we daily help our Father to go across the sky. We do this not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. If we were to cease practicing our religion, in ten years the sun would no longer rise. Then it would be night forever. I then realized on what the dignity, the tranquil composure of the individual Indian was founded. It springs from his being a son of the sun. His life is cosmologically meaningful, for he helps the father and preserver of all life in his daily rise and descent. End of quote. This belief of the Pueblos, that they help their father, the sun, to rise each day and make his transit of the heavens, turns out to be a primitive, naive version of Jung's new myth. Later in 1925, while traveling in Africa, Jung had another experience that crystallized the formulation of the myth more explicitly. Jung writes, from Nairobi, we used a small ford to visit the Athi Plains, a great game preserve. From a low hill in this broad savanna, a magnificent prospect opened out to us. To the very brink of the horizon, we saw gigantic herds of animals. Gazelle, antelope, gnu, zebra, warthog, and so on. Grazing, heads nodding, the herds moved forward like slow rivers. 
there was scarcely any sound save the melancholy cry of a bird of prey. This was the stillness of the eternal beginning, the world as it had always been, in the state of non-being. For until then, no one had been present to know that it was this world. I walked away from my companions until I had put them out of sight and savored the feeling of being entirely alone. There I was now, the first human being to recognize that this was the world, but who did not know that in this moment he had first really created it. There the cosmic meaning of consciousness became overwhelmingly clear. Quote, What nature leaves imperfect, the art perfects, says the alchemist. Man, I, in an invisible act of creation, put the stamp of perfection on the world by giving it objective existence. This act we usually ascribe to the Creator alone, without considering that in so doing we view life as a machine calculated down to the last detail, which along with the human psyche runs on senselessly, obeying foreknown and predetermined rules. In such a cheerless clockwork fantasy, there is no drama of man, world, and God. There is no, quote, new day leading to new shores but only the dreariness of calculated processes. My old Pueblo friend came to mind. He thought that the raison d'etre of his Pueblo had been to help their father, the sun, to cross the sky each day. I had envied him for the fullness of meaning in that belief, and had been looking about without hope for a myth of my own. Now I knew what it was, and knew even more, that man is indispensable for the completion of creation, that in fact he himself is the second creator of the world, who alone has given to the world its objective existence, without which, unheard, unseen, silently eating, giving birth, dying, heads nodding through the millions of years, it would have gone on in the profoundest night of non-being down to its unknown end. Human consciousness created objective existence and meaning, and man found his indispensable place in the great process of being. End quote. In answer to Job, he puts it more succinctly Existence is only real when it is conscious to somebody. That is why the Creator needs conscious man, even though, from sheer unconsciousness, he would like to prevent him from becoming conscious. And later, Quote, whoever knows God has an effect on him. In his autobiography, he writes, Man's task is to become conscious of the contents that press upward from the unconscious. Neither should he persist in his unconsciousness, nor remain identical with the unconscious elements of his being, thus evading his destiny, which is to create more and more of consciousness. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. It may even be assumed that just as the unconscious affects us, so the increase in our consciousness affects the unconscious. And finally, once the union of opposites has been experienced, the ambivalence in the image of a nature god or creator god ceases to present difficulties. On the contrary, the myth of the necessary incarnation of God, the essence of the Christian message, 
can then be understood as man's creative confrontation with the opposites and their synthesis in the self, the wholeness of his personality. The unavoidable internal contradictions in the image of Creator God can be reconciled in the unity and wholeness of the self as the conjunctio positorum of the alchemists or as a unio mystica. In the experience of the self, it is no longer the opposites God and man that are reconciled, as it was before, but rather the opposites within the God image itself. That is the meaning of divine service, of the service which man can render to God, that light may emerge from the darkness, that the Creator may become conscious of His creation, and man conscious of himself. That is the goal, or one goal, which fits man meaningfully into the scheme of creation, and at the same time confers meaning upon it. It is an explanatory myth which has slowly taken shape within me in the course of the decades. It is a goal I can acknowledge and esteem, and which therefore satisfies me. These are the chief statements Jung has made concerning the emerging new myth. To many, especially those without personal experience of the unconscious, these statements may be hard to comprehend. The remainder of this chapter will be an effort to make the new myth somewhat more understandable. The essential new idea is that the purpose of human life is the creation of consciousness. Okay, we're going to skip ahead here to another passage later on in the book. A notable feature of the new myth is its capacity to unify the various current religions of the world. By seeing all functioning religions as living expressions of individuation symbolism, i.e. the process of creating consciousness, an authentic basis is laid for a true ecumenical attitude. The new myth will not be one more religious myth in competition with all the others for man's allegiance. Rather, it will elucidate and verify every functioning religion by giving more conscious and comprehensive expression to its essential meaning. The new myth can be understood and lived within one of the great religious communities, such as Catholic Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, etc., or in some new community yet to be created, or by individuals without specific community connections. This universal application gives it a genuine claim to the term Catholic. For the first time in history, we now have an understanding of man so comprehensive and fundamental that it can be the basis for a unification of the world, first religiously, culturally, and in time politically. When enough individuals are carriers of the consciousness of wholeness, the world itself will become whole. In summary, I have traced the outlines of a new myth which I believe is emerging from the life and work of Jung. This myth is not a faith, but a hypothesis, based on empirical data and consistent with the scientific conscience. The new myth tells us that each individual ego is a crucible for the creation of consciousness and a vessel to serve as a carrier of that consciousness, i.e., a vessel for the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. The individual psyche is the Holy Grail, made holy by what it contains. Consciousness is a psychic substance which is produced by the experience of the opposites suffered, not blindly, but in living awareness. This experience is the conjunctio, the mysterium conjunctionis, that generates the philosopher's stone, 
which symbolizes consciousness. Each individual is, to a greater or lesser extent, a participant in cosmic creation, one of the buckets in the great Manichaean wheel of light, who contributes his, quote, widow's might to the cumulative treasury of the archetypal psyche realized. Every human experience, to the extent that is lived in awareness, augments the sum total of consciousness in the universe. This fact provides the meaning for every experience and gives each individual a role in the ongoing world drama of creation. And then there's one more that I wanted to read. Okay, so, since the unconscious provides the material of our dream life, the self becomes visible to the ego by being seen in dreams. Presumably, the reverse is also true. Perhaps the life dramas of the ego are the dreams of the self. Shakespeare says, We are such stuff as dreams are made on. Whose dreams? Perhaps our conscious lives are the symbolic dramas by means of which God becomes aware of himself. If all the world's a stage, who is the audience? Could God be watching the acting out of his complexes in the drama of human history? According to a Gnostic myth, the cosmos, including man, was created in order to collect and retrieve the scattered particles of light which had been lost in the beginning. Evidently, God needs the human ego to transmit consciousness to him. I offer you a personal fantasy. Suppose the universe consists of an omniscient mind containing total and absolute knowledge, but it is asleep. Slowly it stirs, stretches, and starts to awaken. It begins to ask questions. What am I? But no answer comes. Then it thinks, I shall consult my fantasy. I shall do active imagination. With that, galaxies and solar systems spring into being. The fantasy focuses on Earth. It becomes autonomous and life appears. Now the divine mind wants dialogue and man emerges to answer that need. The deity is straining for self-knowledge and the noblest representatives of mankind have the burden of that divine urgency imposed on them. Many are broken by the weight. A few survive and incorporate the fruits of their divine encounter in mighty works of religion and art and human knowledge. These then generate new ages and civilizations in the history of mankind. Slowly, as this process unfolds, God begins to learn who he is. Then skipping ahead a few paragraphs. On the collective level, consciousness is the name for a new supreme value coming to birth in modern man. The pursuit of consciousness, quote, con-science, unites the goals of the two previous stages of Western history, namely religion and science. Religion, meaning linking back, has as its essential purpose the maintaining of man's connectedness with God. This corresponds to Eros, the connecting principle, and the, quote, withness factor of consciousness as, quote, knowing with. Science, on the other hand, boldly gave up the connection with the other and opted instead to pursue an increase in human knowledge. If religion is self-oriented, science is ego-oriented. Religion is based on Eros, science on Logos. The age now dawning will provide a synthesis for this thesis and antithesis. 
Religion sought linkage. Science sought knowledge. The new worldview will seek linked knowledge. It is already widely recognized that the pursuit of scientific knowledge as the highest goal of human endeavor is puerile and inadequate to the needs of the whole man. A return to the intellectually naive standpoint of concrete religious faith is equally inappropriate to the modern mind. A genuinely new goal and purpose for human existence is required. That new goal has been found and articulated by Jung. In his words, Man is the mirror which God holds up before him, or the sense organ with which he apprehends his being. Thus, the individual striving for consciousness becomes the modern formulation of the venerable idea of laboring in the vineyard of the Lord, and the new answer to the age-old question of the meaning of life. Okay, so I apologize for the, the length of those readings, and I, I, I realize that I throw in a lot of different stuff at you, but, um, you know, I think this is very, uh, very much in line with some of the information that we're getting from these near-death experiences, and, and um, uh, particularly apt in this case with the response from the elder beings that... Um, as to Richard's question about God, uh, and I will say it again, how can you see that which you are yourself a part of? We are all expressions of God. When you see with your eyes, you see through the eyes of God, and he experiences reality through yours. When you speak to God, you speak to yourself. Um, and, and so, I mean, even in that last little section that we read of, of Jung's idea that we are the sense organs for God to experience himself. I mean, that is a, a deeply profound idea. You know, most of, most, most of, I guess, the ideas that kind of emerge out of perhaps more traditional religious systems, and, and the one that I'm most familiar with is Christianity, is, is kind of this idea that we are we are subservient to God or we are under God and, and, and God is directing our lives. And, and it's kind of like that we are trying to please God. We're trying to not to sin and we're trying not to, to do anything bad because God doesn't like it and God told us not to do it. And, and, and at least those, that's kind of how it seems like the, the um, some of the religious foundations are being handled nowadays but this idea that that emerges from uh richard's experience other people's near-death experiences uh the work of jung and others is that man has some role to play in 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 usefulness to the divine to the deity um and and that we can our experience is is providing consciousness to God and 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 Jung thought that over time the growth of consciousness did has I I don't know transformed the relation between man and the he would say the self the archetype of the self which can can be indistinguishable from a god image you know as I've mentioned many times when I've read Jung that he never he's never speaking about the actual metaphysical god um, only how it appears to us and our 
in our lives. Um, and obviously it can take many different forms. Uh, he talks about the God image. And so his idea is that we, we provide the, <laughs> the ability for God to reflect on himself, that without uh, a consciousness to be aware of something, like in his passage on the, when he was talking about his time in Africa, looking out on the plains and seeing the animals, that without a reflecting consciousness to see this, the world is, is still uncreated, and that man provides the that uh, second creation, as he says, and, and like like the elders told Richard, that we are co-creators, that we have a role to play. And so I, I don't know if I, I can, uh, uh, how much more I can add to that without being redundant, but it, it just seems to me that some of the ideas that are expressed in, in near-death experiences and, and Richard's, as well as others, is that we have this role to play for God or for the divine, for whatever it is, the, the totality of, of existence, whether it appears as a, a image of an eye or as a wise old man or a brilliant light, that we, we play some role in, in, in actually making God con- concrete and conscious and, and to be able to change. There's this idea that if something is eternal and infinite, that there's no no time, for one, which is something that we kind of uh, see mentioned in, in near-death experiences, that because there's no change. If something doesn't change, time is a, a measure of, of things changing, and, and if there's no time, that no change, that this eternal kind of infinite being would contain all possibilities and, and opposites within himself. And, and by taking a concrete form in this in this world, in this incarnation, that we allow for the change of, of the deity, we allow for the change of the divine, the, the transformation of God in our own lives. And that depends on, on our level of awareness. The, the more that we become aware of, of uh, ourselves and, and the meaning in our lives and, and what comes to us, what... Um, what we can consider divine, that the more that we are of use in the this process that is ongoing, and it's still, I mean, I don't, I don't want to trivialize this or, or to to try to, you know, uh, I don't know, explain away anybody's near death experience or anything like that. It's it seems profound and it's still infinitely mysterious. I, you know, I, I don't want to take away any of the grandeur or. or any of that, I, I think it's absolutely as as deep and as as profound as one can get to to think about our our place in this whole drama. And they they are you know these the Edinger points out that this is a hypothesis. It's not you know obviously it's not going to be something that can be proved in any way. But uh, we can each look at our own lives and our own experiences to see how we interact with that which is beyond us that's that which comes to us in the in our dreams and and intuitions and uh floods of of meaning that that kind of guide us throughout our lives and so <laughs> to get back to the experience i think that's just a a interesting backdrop to try to 
to make sense of some of these question and answers. Like I said, not only in this one, but in in this near-death experience, but in others. Because the the question and answer con- continues, and he Richard asks, why do I feel like this is home? And the answer is, because the, this is home. They say that all, all start here and end here, and this is the kind of the arrival and departure place for all of the journeys, I guess, the incarnation, so to speak. Um, and then he continues and asks, well, when I come back, can I stay? And he kind of got a surprising answer. Uh, the answer he got was that, uh, sure, but we don't think you're going to want to stay very long. You can stay as long as you want, but usually you you uh, love your lessons. You like You like your lessons. Which again it brings up this kind of motif of incarnation of of taking a life uh, on Earth as some kind of school. It's an idea that we see in in, in different near death experiences, uh, fairly well, somewhat regularly. So say that you love your they they tell them that you love your lessons, especially the hard ones, but you can do as you please. So. Uh, he continues asking questions. Uh, he does not go into more of his uh, the answers. I guess some of them are personal. Uh, some of them are things that we're not ready to hear yet, according to Richard. So he, so we have all of this kind of profound information that Richard has brought back and shared with us from this uh, experience that happened to him a long time ago. And the ideas that emerge are, are profoundly deep. And, you know, th- that seems to be the common denominator with most near-death experiences is that there is a depth to them that, that, don't, that doesn't, I, I don't think, makes sense from the, the usual kind of explaining away of near-death experiences as hallucinations or, or some kind of uh, trauma-induced uh, flood of uh, neurotransmitters and chemicals which creates these different uh, side effects. Uh, the consistent quality of the, uh, the meaning that's brought back and even the uh, motifs in, in the imagery and the the uh, our ability to even see um, you know relations of the imagery and near death experiences to certain spiritual traditions, even ones that the um, experiencer does not belong to. I think that's that's just <laughs> I don't have the words. I'm I'm running out of the words to describe it. Um, which is probably good because this has been going on for a while. But I'll just end um, by pointing out that his story ends, at least, with him mentioning that he had the sense of deja vu once he comes back to his body. Um, he says that he, he didn't want to go back, but he, uh, he felt compelled to, and he wakes up. And he, you know, the experience of coming back into the body, as, as described by near-death experiencers is, is usually quite uh, unpleasant, it seems like, kind of being confined and having a flood of pain come over them. 
Um, and then so he finds himself in the back of an ambulance and he says he has a strong sense of deja vu and and he says that it was a memory of a dream that he had a couple of days before. So here we have uh, some kind of uh, synchronistic event where he realized that he had uh, seen this image of, of what he was going to be going through a few days previously. And so those sorts of things seem to be quite common with near-death experiences uh, and, and with uh, kind of intuitions and, and feeling of other people's emotions and those sort of things. The after effects are, are uh, very, very interesting, but that's, that's what we have. And so, yeah, all I can say is that I, I think that this idea of us being of some use to the transformation of God or the divine or whatever term you want to use is is deeply meaningful and it even seems to me that even with the information that people bring back from near death experiences with the wisdom and and the kind of insights that they're given it's still the it's still our job to make sense of it and integrate it into the world. And, and, and that in a way that it seems like the, the experience itself is a, I don't know, a, a compensatory to our, our material and earthly lives. They, the elders mentioned that there's no separation, that any separation is an illusion. And but we clearly live that separation here on Earth. I mean, we, at least that is a, a fairly, uh, fairly basic feature of our existence here is that we're we're separated from things. And so, I, I don't I don't want to be dismissive of that. I don't want to. I don't think that bringing back the knowledge that we're all one doesn't doesn't erase the our human experience, you know, we, we have to be able to integrate this knowledge and, and not, I don't know, we have to bring it, make it human. We have to, I guess it's performing part of that role that, that uh, Jung speculated about, that we, we perform a, a certain purpose of, of, of doing something that perhaps an unlimited omniscient, all-powerful deity or force cannot. There's this idea that the one thing that we possess that, that God doesn't, uh, you know, being a, an all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent kind of deity is our limitation. And, and so I, it's, it seems to be part of our role to to transform ourselves, to, to become more of, of what we are, but also, you know, to, to try to integrate this wisdom in a way that, that is human, you know, because you can, you can hear the words that everything is love and everything is unity, but you come back to a place where if you try to live out those words 
naively, then, you know, it, it, maybe it will work, but it depends on how you're able to, to make sense of them and apply them in your life. And, and I think that that goes for all of us when we, we hear these statements and this wisdom that is emanating from a, um, place from which, you know, we, uh, obviously cannot establish, um, scientifically or, or, or any kind of, uh, existence beyond that of the individual who is experiencing it. We, we get this wisdom and we have to be able to make sense of it and, and not do it in a way that is, that is going to, I don't know, be too one-sided. Sometimes I feel like the ideas that come from near-death experiences is all love and light, and that leaves out a whole half of life, a whole half of existence, which is the material and the dark and the and the low and the you know um, the stuff that isn't really represented in, in most near-death experiences, and it, it's our job to to bring those things together, to unite those opposites. And um, according to, to Jung's work and his ideas, that, that bringing together of those opposites, the beautiful and the love and the light and the dark and the low and the uh, material aspects of life is the bringing together of wholeness, of totality. And that is the, what uh, creates more consciousness and more awareness not only in ourselves, but perhaps in other people and perhaps in, in the divine. So I think that is <laughs> very meaningful and quite a responsibility for us, even in all of our experiences. You know, there's often, even in, here in Richard's case, they say that there's no judgment that um, even the bad things that... that he and others have done in their life that there was no judgment. There was just kind of a uh, mild bemusement from the the elders, and and it seems to be in line with that idea that even the good and the bad is serves some use. And that's not saying that you want to blindly go around hurting people or or doing that, because ultimately it seems like. Like anybody that you hurt, you experience that pain for yourself. So there is this this unity um, that definitely comes through. And it's just that kind of whatever complicated process of bringing those things together and synthesizing them into into our lives that, that seems to be uh, the path or the way or whatever whatever name you want to give it. So I've rambled on enough. <laughs> I hope uh, that you enjoyed this episode and and uh, hearing Richard's experience. I thought it was it was amazing and it's it's clarity, especially for you know uh, a kid who was eight years old at the time. I'm sure that you know he's had plenty of time to kind of crystallize his thoughts on and, and his memories on what happened. Um, but he mentions that it was it's definitely real, and that's something that that we hear all the time that this is something real and. So I'm very grateful for uh, to Richard for sharing that, and uh, I hope you got something out of it. And uh, so we'll end there, and thank you for listening. 
Uh, if you want to reach me, you can do so at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, you can check out our Facebook page. I don't really post very often, but I will. I'll start doing that more. And we're on Spotify. I got the podcast podcast up on Stitcher, if anybody uses Stitcher, uh, and Google Podcasts as well. So uh, it's all over the place if you want to find it. And if you like it, please uh, share it with a friend or someone who would be interested. And um, and if you, uh, if you like the podcast and uh, enjoy it and get something out of it, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use because that uh, really helps helps uh, get it out there. So now we will end with a quote on death. Okay, I am all talked out, so I'm going to end uh, quickly and succinctly with a quote from uh, the Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Death smiles at us all but all a man can do is smile back. <laughs>